You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. There we are. We have liftoff. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg and gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. Lisa Henderson and her son, Brandon Henderson, are standing by with a remarkable story of addiction and recovery, supernatural recovery. They'll talk about that, uh, the opioid addiction raging across North America and Brandon's uh, recovery. They are with us for the full two hours. We'll hear their uh, story, and then in the second hour, I'll open up the phones, and I'm hoping to hear from you if you believe you were healed by a miracle or some supernatural intervention. I'd really like to hear from you. Uh, Before that, let me quickly introduce the boys in the band on the flying V. Gibson guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson. Ian, tell the good listeners about your uh, your latest album. Uh, the Grease Marks on Wild Records. The Grease Marks, Wild Records. Yes, sir. And they can order that through the website? Yeah, greasemarks.com. There you go. Go out and grab a copy. Grab two. <laughs> Christmas <laughs> is coming. All right. Uh, now, on the uh, Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my story producer, oh, Albert. Albert Vinzel is missing. Does anyone know where Albert is? Is he okay? I hope he's okay. Very mysterious, Albert is. Very secretive. He could be a Russian spy. What do you think? (laughs) Occasionally, I've caught Albert talking into his shoe. So, there's something going on there. Anyway, we miss Albert, and I'm sure he'll be back uh, shortly. Uh, Finally, on the Hammond B3, my YouTube live stream producer, Ryan White... Uh, We are, incidentally, the live YouTube stream is uh, down. We're having some internet issues in studio. But we are recording for the uh, the YouTube channel. So this program will be available on the YouTube channel shortly. We're just not live streaming it. Uh, And, um, in fact, what we'll be doing is when I host the program from my home studio, which I'll be doing from time to time, we will be doing the live stream from home. In fact, next week I'll be hosting from home. Uh, So please uh, take a moment, check out the YouTube channel if you haven't already done so, and hit that sub button. 
we have quickly shot up to uh, 11,000 subscribers, and we seem to be gaining some traction. Our recent show, in fact, on national parks and underground bases with Mary Joyce from a few weeks back, has close to 60,000 views. 60,000. So let's keep it rolling, please. Uh, Brandon Henderson was shooting 30 Roxy's a day, up to 70 milligrams. He recalls overdosing on multiple occasions, coming to and realizing his legs were numb and blue. I'm convinced I killed myself during that time, and Jesus resurrected me, based on praying parents and prophecy, Brandon says. So, how did a pastor's son who was raised in church and believed in Jesus end up as a statistic? part of an epidemic, eating away at the land of the free. Well, he's here to tell this remarkable story of supernatural healing. Brandon is a pastor's son and recovered addict of more than 15 years. In 2010, he was arrested by U.S. Marshals and faced a 15-year prison sentence. His life spiraled out of control until, by God's grace and mercy, he landed in a Christian recovery program a few years later. Today, he is completely sober and is a devoted husband and father. Brandon's heart is to bring hope to the hopeless, and his testimony is featured in the documentary Hope Has a Name. And uh, that story is also covered in Charisma magazine. An astute businessman, he's worked in management for a Fortune 500 company as well as a real estate investor. Currently, he serves as the worship leader and inner healing pastor at Salt Life Church on Merritt Island, Florida. He's also an itinerant speaker. Brandon, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good. Thank you, Richard. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Now, Lisa Henderson is Brandon's mom. She's a dynamic, candid, inspirational Christian woman speaker, minister, author, and filmmaker. Her transparency and straightforward approach, coupled with prophetic insight, places her in great demand for conferences and churches. Lisa and her husband, Ken, are revivalists who pastor Salt Lake or Salt Life Church on Merritt Island, Florida, where they are also the founders of Cornerstone School of Supernatural Ministry. Lisa, welcome to you. How are you? Do we have Lisa there? Richard, we have some technical difficulties. She's getting her phone adjusted. Oh, all right. No worries. Well, I was going to start with you, Brandon. So, are you there, Lisa? I can barely... I thought I heard something. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have you maybe pass the phone back and forth, but we'll... we'll, Let's try this. Put it on speakerphone. We'll put it on speakerphone? Can you hear us both now? I can hear you, Brandon. Are you there, Lisa? I'm here, Richard. Ah, That's all right. Glad to have you aboard. Thank you. Brandon, I wanted to start with you. So, um, you know, we always assume, of course, that you know this, the uh, the children of pastors are going to le- you know lead the straight and narrow life. But how did it how did it begin with you? Was there an injury that that caused you to start taking some sort of a painkiller? How did you get started down this downward spiral? Yeah, there was an injury um, that that kind of increased it. My drug abuse actually started early on, though. Uh, in my teenage years with with uh, just trial and stuff, uh, basically like using pot and seeing what that led to. Um, that didn't get real serious, though, until I got into a bad car accident in 2008 and uh, injured my back and went to a pain management facility for uh, chronic back uh, pain. And they immediately per, uh, prescribed me 240, 30 milligram oxycodone a day. And within about a month, I noticed that I started becoming physically dependent on those. 
And so, um, what are Roxy's, by the way? Is that oxycodone? It's oxycodone, yep. Okay. And you were taking, did you say, up to 70 milligrams a day? I don't know. That, that's a lot? No, it was actually it's quite a bit higher than that at the end. Um, the, the pills were 30 milligrams a piece, and at the end of my addiction, there was a couple of days that I had did up to 70 pills in a day. 70. Those were the times when I actually was uh, purposefully trying to end my life. Ah, so you were trying to kill yourself. Yeah, and, and what happened was... Um, after years of being on oxycodone and trying to come off of it on my own, I tried several times to quit, and the withdrawals would get so bad, I'd be sick, and you know, dope sick for two weeks in a row. Uh, when you're sick like that, throwing up, and you can't, can't sleep, you get to this point where you just feel hopeless. And so I had to have pills just to live a normal life, uh, which I knew was not normal. So I felt hopeless, and I thought, well, the easy way out is just to overdose. And so, yeah, that's what I did. And, and how old were you at that time? Uh, at the end of my addiction, it was 27, so it got really bad from the ages of about 24 to 27. And for that three years of hell that you were living, were three you... Three years of absolute hell, yeah. Were you, were you gainfully employed? Were you in a relationship? When it first started, I was employed. Uh, quickly, I lost my employment because the addiction, you know, became obvious to everybody at my, at my job. And, uh, you know, they encouraged me to go in and get help at that time. I wasn't ready to do it. I kept feeling like I could quit on my own. And so I chose not to, to uh, do that. The more I tried to quit, though, and the more I felt hopeless, the more that uh, I kind of embraced the drug lifestyle and just started using more and more. And um, some of my friends were selling hard part of their prescription in order to sustain their habits. So I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I uh, started selling my pills so that I could then provide for myself and my family while sustaining my habit. And, of course, this is a terrible idea. Uh, let me let me bring your mom in here, uh, uh, Lisa. Uh, at, yes. At what at what point did you find out that your son? Uh, was... At what point did I find out? Yes. Remember the cracker girl. Um. I, yeah. I think we met him. I knew that he had um, mm. a drug issue. I didn't realize to what degree or how bad it had spiraled out of control. Um, he was living in a, a different town at the time. Um, I knew that when we were seeing him that um, he was altered. Um, I didn't realize that it had gone from prescription medication uh, to what it had. And we were at a Cracker Barrel having breakfast with him, his dad and I. And um, he told us that morning that he had started shooting up. Shooting and up? So this was about maybe... Of course, at that time, my arms had track marks all over them. Yeah. Um, that was probably maybe a year and a half into his addiction. Now, I, I guess I skipped over that part with you, Brandon. So you were, at, at what point, you started taking heroin? At what point did I start taking heroin? Yes. That wasn't quite until quite a while after that. Um, it, be, it became harder and harder to get prescription drugs, uh, at least at the level that I was needing to take them to sustain my habit. And uh, somewhere, I don't know, about a year after this Cracker Barrel uh, meeting, I was trying to get clean, so I called my mom and dad. Uh, it was after I lost my job. You know, I kind of was, like, wanting to get free but didn't know how. So uh, I called them and said, hey, I'm going to move back to Jacksonville where they were, try and get a support group going and, and come off. So I moved back to Jacksonville to get close to them. The addiction didn't slow down. It only got worse as I got there uh, because I got home and I still realized, you know, I'm out of control. I can't quit this. I felt completely hopeless. 
started making some friends, uh, some new friends that weren't so good. Um, and they said, hey, you know, why don't you try this? It's cheaper. I got it now. You know, and what happened was I was sick when I started. And when you're sick, to that degree, you'll do just about anything to make that feeling go away. And so I tried it, and, you know, when I did, the, the withdrawal stopped. And so, you know, it was Katie Barr's door after that, off to the races. Right. Uh, and and, uh, and is, that, is that fairly common, that, that people that are become addicted to prescribed opioids, oxycodone or, or a Percocet, or Percocet they can, they're no longer getting the dosage they require from their doctor, uh, and so they switch to the cheaper heroin. That's pretty well the, the way it plays out, I guess. All right, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. Lisa and Brandon Henderson are here with a, a remarkable and harrowing story of opioid addiction and supernatural recovery. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Listen to these disturbing statistics if you don't already know the uh, the litany of woe here in a 2015 report the u.s drug enforcement administration stated that overdose overdose deaths particularly from prescription drugs and heroin have reached epidemic levels nearly half of all opioid overdose deaths in 2016 involved prescription opioids from 1999 to 2008 Overdose death, overdose death rates, sales and substance abuse treatment and submissions or admissions related to opioid pain relievers all increased substantially. By 2015, there were more than 50,000 annual deaths from drug overdose, causing more deaths than either car accidents or guns. Drug overdoses have since become the leading cause of death of Americans under 50, with two-thirds of those deaths from opioids. In 2016, the crisis decreased overall life expectancy of Americans for the second consecutive year. In 2016, over 64,000 Americans died from overdoses, 21% more than the almost 53,000 in 2015. In Canada, half the overdoses were accidental, while a third were intentional. The remainder were unknown. All right, we are talking about the uh, opioid epidemic or opioid uh, crisis the rapid increase in the use of prescription and non-prescription opioid drugs in the United States and Canada, which really began in the late 90s and continuing through the next uh, two decades. And, uh, of course, opioids uh, are, are a diverse class of moderately strong painkillers. We're talking uh, oxycodone, commonly sold under the trade names of Oxycontin and Percocet, uh, Vicodin, uh, and a very strong painkiller, fentanyl, of course, which is synthesized to resemble other opiates, such as uh, opium-derived morphine and heroin. Uh, Brandon Hen- Henderson is here. He was hopelessly addicted to uh, opioids, moved on to heroin, and uh, is here to tell us about his remarkable supernatural recovery. 
This story is featured in a documentary. We'll talk about that momentarily. It's called Hope Has a Name. Joining Brandon on the line is his mother, Lisa Henderson. And uh, Lisa and, and her husband, Ken, are pastors in Florida. Uh, Lisa, I mean, obviously, nope, this is a parent's worst nightmare. Um, I mean, when you found out that your son, you know, raised in the church, was using heroin, how did you feel? Um, obviously terrified, um, because I realized, you know, how bad it was. You know, no, no parent likes to imagine their child sticking a needle in their arm and shooting drugs up. Um, of course, then there's the, the feeling of, of blame. You know, what did I do wrong? Where did we go wrong? Um, how did he get to this point? Um, what can I do to fix this? Um, there's so many uh, stages of, that you go through, anger, grief, I'm uh, panic, just, you know, terror, um, and then you cycle back through. It, it's just really a horrible nightmare. And, uh, Brandon, you were, you were raised in the church. I mean, were you, did you consider yourself a, uh, a devout Christian when, when you started taking drugs, or had you fallen away from, uh, from the faith? What happened? I think falling away would be an accurate description. Uh, yeah, I was raised in church uh, at a very early age. I had faith in God and built a relationship with God. Um, as I progressed through uh, preteen years and the teenage years, a lot of things happened in my life that caused me to question my faith in God. You know, uh, when something bad happens, a lot of times we often ask, well, "How could God allow that to happen if there is a God?" And so those questions began to bubble up in my mind. And um, because of the pain and hurt that I had from emotional wounds in my life, you know, I started looking in different places to fulfill uh, the need that I had for God because I turned away from Him out of bitterness. And I think that that really kind of led me into the drug addiction, um, you know, long before I ever got into the car accident. That was kind of just a tipping point for me. Um, it was the emotional wounds, those underlying issues that actually drove me uh, further into addiction once that was made available to me. There's a lot of different things that, that tie together as to why somebody will be addicted. Um, for instance, opiates, they're not designed for a long-term pain management situation like I was having to deal with with my back injury. They were designed for something very short-term. You take somebody and you put them on it long-term, the way the drug is designed. designed, it actually takes more of it over time to cover your pain because your tolerance continues to grow and your body becomes dependent on it. So you take that and you add it into the mix of this kid who's got all these emotional wounds, and it's just a recipe for disaster. So are you suggesting that even had you not been in the car accident and started taking oxycodone, you may have become addicted to opiates another way? Uh, not, not necessarily opiates. I don't think that opiates would have been the issue. Um, but I was hurting, and, you know, it might have been eating too much. I might have become addicted to uh, you know, medicating that alcohol. Um, you know, there's a number of different things that we turn to to medicate our feelings. Uh, it just so happens that because I had a car accident, I had an excuse or reason uh, to use that, and that was introduced to me. First time that I took pain medicine and all the back pain was gone, all the emotional pain was gone at the same time, I was like, wow, this is amazing. It rocked my world. Uh, little did I know the damage it was going to cause. Lisa, I don't, I don't know if you can answer this, but I mean, um, you know, 
you and your husband are pastors, you raised your son in the church, and yet he's standing, sitting before you at a Cracker Barrel restaurant and you realize he's addicted to heroin. Is that, I mean, is there an added strain being a, being a pastor, knowing that you raised your son in the church and you, you're, you're ministering to other people and your son is a heroin addict? Does that double the, the pain and the shame and the... Absolutely. Yes, it does. Um, there's there's a lot of pressure with that when you realize you're, you know, ministering to other people, you're preaching the gospel, um, you're you know trying to help them get their lives straight, um, get healing to their lives, and then you have you know your child who you love more than life, who has this addiction, um, and yeah, there's a, a lot of shame and um, just pressure that comes with that, and then the you know. For a while, a long while, you know, we weren't letting people know the degree that his addiction was, and not then just out of shame, but to protect him, and so that he, we felt like that he was going to one day come through this, and we wanted him to be able to hold his head up and not feel like everybody in the world knew, you know, what he was doing. Um, and then you get to a point that you're so desperate for help that at that point, then it really doesn't matter who knows. You just want people praying and, and any help you can get. Uh, Brandon, can you take us to the the day when you decided that you it would just be better to just to slip away to take an overdose? The day when I decided that it would be better to do that, yeah, I, I can do that. Um, this was okay. So in 2010, I was arrested by U.S. Marshals uh, for selling oxycodone, and um, spent some time in jail. While I was in jail, I got clean, uh, but it was a very short amount of time. Come out of jail and because I hadn't really dealt with any of the issues that was driving me to medicate myself at that point. Uh, and I had some back pain still. It was very easily for me to fall back into it. So I went back into using drugs. Um, while I was clean, though, my wife became pregnant with my oldest daughter, Leva. And um, while she was pregnant it was when I went back into using drugs. It was a very short period that I was clean. Um, after my daughter was born, and I was looking at myself in the mirror, and I was seeing this guy who I felt was completely hopeless. I'd look at my wife and my daughter, and I just thought, you know, they're going to be better off without this in their life. So the easy thing for her to do, because Julie wouldn't leave me, was be for me to die, and then maybe she could find somebody who would be more equipped to raise my daughter. And so that was the thought that I had. I can't do it alone. I can't quit. It's just not working. I'll just, you know, do everybody a favor and end it. And and so, what did you, you what did you take? Um, how many pills did you take? Well, there's multiple times that I shot off up to seventy pills in a day. Uh, so I was crushing up about 10, 30 milligram oxycodones, uh, and then drawing them up in a syringe and shooting up. You know, this is on top of taking three or four uh, two milligrams Annex and the, the street on the street that's called a bar. So I take two or three bars and then shoot up ten oxycodones. So I do that several times in a row because the syringe only holds so much at one time until I would just fall over, uh, pass out, completely dead. Come to several hours later, uh, completely cold and numb. I'm talking blue from the waist down. And, you know, I'm convinced that I did kill myself during that time. When I was in my addiction, my parents was, every time my dad would call me, he'd pick up the phone and he'd call me a man of God. He'd say, hey, man of God, how you doing? And every time he did that, I'd be like, inside, internally, I was frustrated because something inside of me wanted to be a man of God, 
but I couldn't see that as any possibility because I felt completely hopeless. So I'd be frustrated and, and angry, not really at him, but angry at the situation that he was calling me a man of God. And what he was doing was he was actually prophesying over me, and he was calling forth life. And he would and he would he would prophesy this exactly when he prayed, say, "You will live and not die. You will stand and declare the works of the Lord." And so when I kill myself. I believe that God actually raised me up based on his prophecy. God was honoring his prophecy in the prayers. God wasn't done with me yet. He wasn't done with my story yet, so he brings me back. I can actually remember when I would shoot up and die. Like, I could see myself and feel myself after I was completely unconscious, slipping. Like, I mean, slipping through darkness and being pulled fast. And then all of a sudden, something would jerk me right back to my body, and I'd come to. So is that what you would was that a near death experience? Would, I mean, did you did you have? Sort I don't of the, think it was. I don't think it was a near death experience. I think it was a death experience. A death. You think you were clinically dead? Yes. Do you have any idea how how many hours you were out? You were gone. A couple, a couple hours. You were dead for a couple hours. Yes. Who Completely. found you? Cold. I'm talking no circulation, blue legs. Um, and so what, what, and here's the, the, the crazy part. God would snatch me back into my body, and I remember waking up, and I almost felt disappointed, like, oh, man, I was almost through this, and now I'm back. And when God brought me back two or three times, and I was like, God, if, if, if that's not the way out, you got to help me get out of this somehow because I can't keep doing this anymore. And so that's when I began to really cry out for help to the Lord. And so uh, God sent a rescue for me, but it was by the way of the police. Um, I was on probation at this point, uh, you know, for, for the, the cell that I had told you about earlier. And um, they kept, I was actually supposed to be on house arrest. I'd slip out the back door and be selling drugs and buying drugs and doing all kind of craziness. They couldn't never quite catch me. Um, until finally my wife just had had enough. Like she was wanting, she could see how close I was to either getting killed by somebody or killing myself. And she was just like, she was willing to do anything. So she turned me into my probation officer and they showed up at my house with three cops and, uh, cuffed me. They went through the house searching everything. They didn't find anything, but they had enough evidence based on what she told them to violate me. And so they told me, they presented that to me. Well, during that time, we had been talking to this place called Dunklin about going into their, their uh, regeneration program, which is in Okeechobee, Florida. It's a Christian regeneration program. I was scared to go down there because I knew I'd have to face my issues. But at the same time, I was ready. Uh, not quite ready enough to make the decision on my own. But when the cops came and they were you know, saying, all right, you're going to go to prison now, I was like, listen, I've been talking to this place called Dunklin. And uh, if you guys would give me a chance to go there, I'll go there and I'll get my life straight. So probation officer agreed to let me go to Dunklin to, to get everything back together. Uh, I think she did that just so she'd know where I was while she went through the legal process because I was down at Dunklin for a month. And then uh, while I was there, she went ahead and violated me and hit me with 13 violations. And so they came and took me out of Dunklin. And then I went to jail. Uh, at this point, you know, I was pretty sure I was going to prison because of I had a pretty thick uh, book, uh, a pretty thick record, and the judge told me the last time that I was in front of him, he said, I promise you the next time you come in front of me for any violation, because I'd already been violated before, you're going straight to prison. And so, you know, that's the conversation I was having on the phone with my mom, and I have to have her take her part of that and her side of the story. Um, right. So, really 
So you you got to, uh, yeah, jump in here, Lisa, and tell me. So yeah. this well, is. Just, um, yeah, he's, we finally got into this place that, that I'd been begging him to go to for a couple of years. And as he said, he wasn't ready. So, you know, he's finally there. We've seen uh, improvement even in four weeks. And then he gets violated and, um, you know, taken back up to uh, Bunnell, um where he was going to face this judge again. And he's on the phone with me. He said, Mom, I've been talking to the uh, public defender. It's not looking good. I want you to prepare yourself that I'm probably going away. And I would just, you know, I'd tell him, I said, I can't hear that. I, I, I can't hear that. I don't believe that. I'm not going to believe that. I'm holding on to the promises God gave me concerning you. And I believe you're coming out of this. I cannot hear you tell me you're going away. I can't, I can't do it. I can't listen to that. How many years was he facing potentially? Fifteen. Fifteen years? Yes. Wow. Okay. So, what happens next? How did he well, get out of that? Well, we, we continued to, um, to pray, and, um, and I know that... that oh, hold on. Before, before she tells you this part, uh, what happened, this was a turning point for me in my life. I came face to face with everything I was afraid of um, and a lot of resentment towards God and, and man. And while I was in jail, you know, I just, I told God, I said, God, I surrender. I totally surrendered to you. I said, I know that I'm going to prison, or maybe not, you know, if you have grace. I said, but either way, you know, I'm done with this lifestyle. I'm done running and trying to do it on my own. Lord, take the wheel. Help, help me through this, and I will serve you, and I'll tell your story everywhere I go. All right, Brandon, I've got to jump in. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back and return to this amazing story of addiction and recovery, supernatural recovery. At the top of the uh, the hour, we'll open up the phone lines and take questions, comments, and hopefully your miracle stories. Back with more. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lisa Henderson is a revivalist pastor who has first-hand experience with the opioid epidemic ravaging across North America. Her son, Brandon, became a hopeless addict to heroin and opioids. They reached out to God through the power of prayer and are now on the road to recovery. Uh, Brandon, uh, you were telling us, uh, okay, so you're facing 15 years, and while in prison, you basically just surrendered. Uh, and said, whether I'm going to be here in jail for the next 15 years or whether through some miracle I escape a prison sentence, I am done with this life, and you are devoting yourself to God. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And i got to tell you that in that moment, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I did feel a sense of peace come over me. Uh, it, It was like the presence of the Holy Spirit settled on me. And I was okay at that moment with whatever future I had faced, or I had to face. And so, uh, you know, and I remember sharing that with my mom. And I think this is, this is important for you to hear her part of the story before we go any further. 
All right, Lisa. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So what's happening with with you and your husband? Uh, it's Ken. Um, your husband also a pastor. Yes. Um, um, my husband and I, we just continue to, you know, turn to God and to pray and ask God for mercy for Brandon. And we realized, um, you know, how bad his addiction was. We realized he'd done some pretty, pretty bad stuff, stuff deserving um, prison. You know, we know that. But we asked God for mercy. We believe from the time he was a child, God had a plan for his life. And when he got taken out of the regeneration program at Dunklin and um, arrested, that day uh, the Lord took me to Scripture um, in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 14. And a lot of people are very familiar with that Scripture as far as twenty nine eleven. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to bless you and prosper you, to give you a future. And I read that, and I felt like the Lord was speaking to me, that I was hearing from Him. But then I heard Him, I felt like I heard Him say, read farther. And I read down to verse 14, and it said, and to bring you back from the place I have taken you. And I felt like He was trying to tell me that that though Brandon had been taken out of Jacqueline and to prison, that He would take him back from prison, back to that program, and He would actually get free. So I just continued to... Um, Stand on that. My husband is such a man of faith and a um, man of God. And he just continues to decree and declare over Brandon that he would do the things God had called him to do, and he would serve the Lord and turn from the drugs and, and the things, everything else that that encompassed, which was a lot. Um, so we continue to stand on that. And then um, I don't know how spiritual you, you know you want me to get, or that your viewers, not your viewers or listeners. Um, can actually accept that during that time, during a time of just desperation, crying out to God, believe in God for His promise, I had what I would call a vision um, of Brandon in court um, with the judge. I, I saw the, the um, state's attorney uh, call the judge aside in my vision, and I, you know, I saw the judge shaking his head, and then I heard him say in the vision, I don't know why I'm doing this, but. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know what you're trying to tell me. And then I saw Brandon standing in court, and I saw Jesus standing behind him with his hand on his shoulder, and like, Lord was trying to assure me, he's got this, he's with him, he's going to be okay. And um, the day we went to court, and we were all really nervous or praying because we knew this is the judge. He was tough, um, and it didn't seem like he was in a very good mood that day, um, just watching him with people coming in before Brandon. And we knew what he said about sending him away. But all of a sudden, the, the state's attorney said, Your Honor, may I see you to the side? And I was like, what? And he pulled him to the side. He went left the, the bench. And they're over there talking with the, um, the uh, public defender. And the judge begins shaking his head. And he's looking at Brandon's file, which is about the size of a very large uh, phone book, very thick. And he's shaking his head, and I'm remembering this vision. And then all of a sudden, he comes back to the bench, and he says these words. He says, I do not know why I'm saying this, but... Wow. And he gives the order for Brandon to go back to Dunklin. Young man, you're going to go back there, and you're going to finish the program. And if you don't finish it, you immediately will begin serving your sentence. So you want to pick up here, Brandon? He actually sentenced me to prison right then. He gave me a seven-year sentence. Yeah. And then he suspended it in lieu of me going back to Dunklin, completing the program, completing my probation and everything that had happened. Exactly right as your mother had seen it in this vision. 
Yes, exactly. Now, here, here's the really cool part. When I went into court and, uh, you know, I'm standing there cuffed in my orange suit, and I know that I'm facing a very long prison sentence. Now, in my heart of hearts, I don't want to go to prison. I want to get out and be with my family because I had seen a little glimmer of hope while I was at Dunklin' of what clean life would be like for me and what God could do in my life based on different men that I've seen who went through the program and had success and what God did in their lives, uh, supernatural stuff that would just blow your mind. And so I wanted that for me. So I'm in, in there facing this prison sentence. And for the first time I'd ever been in front of the judge, my heart was pounding harder than ever before. I mean, my carotid artery, you could see it thumping. It was, it was just out of control. And I felt something put their hand on my shoulder and say, I've got this. And immediately my heart rate dropped. Immediately peace came over. That was Jesus. That was the Holy Spirit that she saw in the vision, putting his hand on my shoulder. And, and the vision came true. Had your mother shared that vision with you prior? No. I don't think so, no. Um, I, I didn't. We had very limited um, ability to talk. You know, it costs money when you're in jail to talk over the phone. And, and so every phone call is very, um, not very long. Um, I got to see him only a couple times through um, the glass. And every time we did see him, his dad or I, we would encourage him and continue to tell him, because every time he would see us, he would try to prepare me for um, what looked like was going to be prison time for him. And I would just try to encourage him. And I just held on to that that vision in my heart and believing that he was not going to get sent away. All right, Lisa, I've got to jump in here again. We'll take a quick time out, come back and uh, delve more into this remarkable story of supernatural healing on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Alisa Henderson and her son, Brandon Henderson, stay with us and into the next hour when we'll open up the phone lines and take your questions, comments, and hopefully your stories of uh, supernatural healings, miracles, either one that has happened to you personally or one that you've witnessed. Uh, Just a a quick side note I wanted to mention. Saturday, October the 20th, I will be hosting a a special uh, presentation with David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech at Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlins Avenue here in Toronto, 40 Donlins Avenue. That's Saturday, October the 20th. I will be hosting, and David John Oates will be presenting his amazing reversals, reverse speech, uh, and will be demonstrating how they can solve the JFK assassination. That's right. He will attempt to solve the JFK assassination using reverse speech. That's Saturday, October 20th, Greek, uh, the Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlins Avenue in Toronto, right across from the Donlin, Donlin subway station. And that's uh, 2 to 5 p.m. on the 20th, 2 to 5 p.m. Tickets are $15 at the door. 
More information, Crime and Trauma Scene uh, Cleaners. CrimeScenecleaners.ca is the website. CrimeScenecleaners.ca. All right, uh, so... Let's see now. Where were we, uh, Lisa? You were uh, you were telling us about this uh, incredible vision you had, uh, where the judge who was you were, was expected to sentence your son Brandon to a lengthy prison sentence. In this vision, uh, he said he started shaking his head and said, "I don't know why I'm doing this, but." And then in the uh, during the actual sentencing, it, it played out exactly that way. This hardened judge shook his head and said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but... And he sent your son back to uh, Dunklin. Is that the name of yes. it? Dunklin? Yes. Dunklin uh, Memorial, yes. The Addiction, uh, the addiction uh, Recovery Center. Yes. And uh, that's okay. So back you went, Brandon. And how long were you at uh, Dunklin this time? One year. One year. That's a long stretch. Uh, and is that how long it typically takes to, to for re- full recovery? Uh, yes, and actually we've done a study that it shows that most especially for people on opiates that it takes about a year for their brain to heal. And they've done MRIs and scans of brains that have been on opiates, and it looks like um, looking at the brain, that it looks like there's holes all in the brain. And um, it's just, been, you know, things aren't firing correctly, so it takes a full year for that to heal. So if you couple that with um, dealing with any emotional issues, um, childhood traumas, hurts, things that um, are driving the addiction, that long period of time is really needed. That's an. Exp- I would imagine that would be a fairly expensive treatment. I mean, can you share how long, how much that would cost? Well, uh, Dunklin's an amazing place because it is a Christian regeneration program. It is a ministry. Um, they do make you pay your way through it, but if you're serious about getting help, and believe me, they're going to find out in the interview if you're serious. Uh, I should say interviews because there's multiple interviews before you can get in. Um, they will let you do a payment plan and i think at the time that i went through they charged me forty five hundred dollars that's it that's it for the whole year for the whole year other places want thirty thousand dollars for 30 days so and don't have as good a results what happens at dunklin you mentioned that you got a glimpse of some some pretty supernatural things brandon can you share some of those with me well uh just seeing men who came from a background like i had come from walking around with their families being made whole again was something that I thought was supernatural. My mom, whenever I was in the, the real heart of my addiction, she would she would come over and just like my dad, she would call me a man of God and, and begin to you know speak life over me and positive things to me. And I would get frustrated and I told her, you need to give that up. I say, opiate addicts don't quit, they die. And it, you know, I wasn't just trying to be negative, but I truly believed that and that's what I've seen and it's just evidence says that's what happens typically. Uh, so to go from that mindset to it, now I'm at this place where I see men who came from just as bad of abuse as I had come from that are living these healthy whole lives now uh, and day to day doing good. I thought that was pretty supernatural in and of itself. Right. What Dunklin does is uh, their their whole 
program. It's called a regeneration program. It's not a rehab. To rehabilitate somebody is to take somebody from where they're at now back to a previous state. To regenerate somebody is to make them all over a new person. The Bible says to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And if you look at psychology, the mind has this really amazing thing called plasticity, right. where you can actually change the way that you think and change the connections in your mind and actually renew your mind. So science backs up the Bible on this. What they do at Dunklin is called inner healing. They deal with a lot of the underlying issues of why you use drugs and the attitudes that led to it and the past hurts and pains that you cover up with whatever your uh, poison is. Mine was opiates, others was pornography, others was alcohol. Some people were there because of eating, you know, there's different things. But they deal with the underlying issues of what's driving you to do this, what's causing the behavior. And once you begin to open up that stuff, and let God heal that, that's where the supernatural transformation takes place, because he goes in and heals those past wounds and those hurts, and he brings about forgiveness in your life in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Now, do you have to be a Christian to be admitted? No. But there's, no. A, there's obviously there's a great deal of, uh, of, uh, of prayer. Most, most men who are hooked on drugs aren't Christians. Uh, I, would, you know, I would venture to say that most of them are not. But they soon become Christians, or do they, yes. do they, yeah, because there's it's a lot not, of prayer going on. You can't force nobody to become a Christian. No, but there's a lot of prayer going on there, I'm guessing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's 100% faith-based. I'll let you know that up front, you know, and so the men usually make a choice right at the beginning whether or not they wanted to see, you know, a lot of guys that go in there skeptical, and, uh, you know, they want to do it anyways because they really don't have any other choices. If you end up in Dunklin, it's because there's nothing else for you. Um, there, there's no other way, no other option, because it's a very hard program to go through. It's a very hard program to get into. It's hard to get into uh, because they know that a lot of people will give up. Because they don't want. What's hard about it is, is when you start dealing with the emotional wounds and stuff that happened to you in your past, that's tough. You start talking about things that happen in people's childhood, they don't want to go there. They'd rather not talk about it. They'd rather cover it up and keep doing stuff. So they make it very hard to get in. So these men come into the program skeptical, but uh, they quickly see like I did. Like God's presence is there, and you see healing taking place. And here's something that you have to experience to understand. The minute that I stepped onto that camp, I could feel the presence of God. I could feel peace in the air. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to me, and he said, you're home. And he began to reassure me that this is going to be okay. Did you witness a lot, of real hard, a lot of real hard cases, hardened individuals uh, who previously had no, no faith, no connection to God, be transformed, rejuvenated? Yes. If, if, if you were to look them up, I mean, we could do interview after interview of men who's been through that program who came in with absolutely no faith, um, and God completely turned their lives around and gave them faith and began to speak to them. And then they began to have a relationship with God where they actually are hearing from God in their own life and uh, setting them completely free. And these men, when you meet them on the street today, you know, I get this all the time. People say, I just can't imagine you being an opiate addict because of the way I look. I have a nice haircut. I do have some tattoos, but I present myself well. They have no idea just looking at me that I used to kick doors in so I could get opiates, you know. Um, and that's what these other men, these hardened criminals, 
when you meet them on the street today, their life is so transformed that it's hard a lot of times for other people to look at them and say, they can't connect those dots. It's hard to reconcile. That is how awesome God is. That he takes something that was so absolutely one way and he completely turns it around and makes it something beautiful. How many, how many of these rejuvenation uh, centers are there? Just the one? No, they have several of them. Uh, actually, I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, up in Georgia who started one called Evans Memorial Camp, which is a branch off of Dunklin. A guy named Rick Wagner went through the program, started the camp up in Georgia. There's other camps. Uh, the Eagle's Nest, I think, is in Virginia, and uh, there's several of them throughout the country. There's one in Titusville. Uh, what's up? Do you think this would be effective in prison? Absolutely. 100%. See, the thing about prison is we send people away, you get them off of drugs, but you don't deal with any of the issues that drove the men to do the things that they were doing. And then they don't receive healing, and they don't forgive, and they walk out of prison a lot of times more jacked up than they went in. And so our system is broken. We actually, my husband and I, um, have a prison ministry, and we actually took the inner healing portion that Brandon went through down at Dunklin, took the material, we went through inner healing ourselves um, so that we could know how to do that and, you know, to take care of any issues that we had. And we took it into the women's prison um, over in Hernando County. And we did two or three different rounds for these women. Um, and most of these women were coming to us at the end of the 12-week session saying, I had spent years in counseling, thousands of dollars, and have gotten more in 12 weeks from what you guys have shown us and talked to us about than I did spending all that money and all that time. Remarkable. Remarkable. Uh, we are uh, just about to the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll uh, keep the two of you, and uh, I want to hear about the, uh, the documentary, Hope Has a Name. Right. And uh, we'll let people know how they can see that. And we'll also open up the phone lines. I want listeners to call with their stories, something that happened to them personally, someone, something that happened to someone they know, they love, uh, stories of rejuvenation, of healing, of miracles, perhaps supernatural intervention. 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area. 416 360 0740 toll free from just about anywhere 1 866 740 4740 1 866 740 4740 You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, camper, RV, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft... That greasy spoon just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio. 740 kilohertz on the amplitude modulation band and 96.7 on the frequency modulation band here in Toronto. 
Hi to all of you tuning us in on one of our fine affiliate stations across North America. Incidentally, for a list of affiliates, you can go to my website, strangeplanet.ca. Hey, you, all of you checking out The Conspiracy Show on The Conspiracy Show app, which is a free download. And, of course, those of you listening and or watching on our YouTube channel. Wherever and however you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Brandon Henderson and his mom Lisa are here for the duration. Brandon was addicted to opioids for many years and heroin. Finally arrested in 2010. He was facing a lengthy prison sentence. His mother, however, had a vision that the, uh, the judge would show mercy and uh, send him back to uh, rehab. And it played out exactly that way. And uh, it was while at uh, a year, spending a year at Dunklin, a Christian recovery program, that he was finally able uh, to heal. This hour, your phone calls, if you've ever been healed through what you believe is a divine intervention, a supernatural means, a miracle, or you've witnessed such a miracle or healing, we'd love to hear from you. Again, 416-360-0740. Toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. 1-866-740-4740. Toll-free. Uh, so, Lisa, when you look out over your congregation, you and your husband, pastors in, uh, in Florida, do you have any, given the statistics, any sense of how many people sitting in those pews might actually be addicted to opioids? Yeah, there's, um, I don't know that we have any personally right now um, in our church. We do have a lot of recovered alcoholics, and we do have some past drug addicts. But as we travel and speak in churches, there's, I can't give you the exact percentage, but there's a lot. There are a lot of people sitting on the pews that are addicted um, to painkillers. And what makes it so challenging is because it's doctor prescribed. They don't look at their addiction the same as they looked at Brandon's addiction heroin. You know, he was using an illegal drug. He's shooting it up. And a lot of times in our minds, we, we look at that differently and we justify our addiction because it was prescribed by a doctor. But there's a high percentage of people sitting um, in congregations that are addicted to painkillers. Right, right. Now, we should say, or at least I, I want to say, that there are people with, with chronic pain uh, who would not be able to function without some of this medication. I mean, it's, is that reasonable to say? I mean, I, I think it is. I think, it, I think that it's reasonable to say that they wouldn't be able to function without some kind of treatment. Um, does that mean it has to be opiates? I think that each case is, is unique and has to be looked at that way. I don't think that opiates is the answer for all chronic pain. I mean, that's what they did for me, and that's what they do for a lot of people, and it ends up being, you know, it may not end up the way that it ended for me, but I, I personally know several people in church right now who started out with same type of thing, older generation, uh, pain, you know, pain in their back, got on opiates now, they're not abusing it like I was, but they can't live without it, not because of the pain, but because if they go without it, they end up dope sick. And, uh, yeah, that's a hard thing for them to admit because they don't want to say I'm addicted to anything because they feel like, you know, this big negative connotation, like they did something wrong. But the fact is that's the way the drug is designed. It actually makes your body 
chemically dependent on it so that when you don't have it in the absence of it, you become sick. The pain is increased because that's part of dope sickness. There are better ways in most cases uh, to treat pain than opiates. I, I, I know, Brandon, that you experimented with, with pot, but how do, you, how do you both feel about medical marijuana? Uh, as far as medical marijuana, I think that it is a better option than uh, opiates. You know, a lot of people might not agree with me. I think that it has to be warranted um, and, and, you know, something that they would have to pray about and, and weigh out for themselves. I think it is definitely a lot less evil than, than opiates. Lisa, do you have an opinion? Um, I agree with them. I'm careful, you know, even with that. Um, and I realize, though, that, you know, it, that it is a leaf, a leaf, um, and that, you know, it can be used as a medical substance. And I think it would definitely have to be weighed out and, um, you know, prayed over. It certainly doesn't have the addictive qualities that the opiates do. When Brandon was going through his addiction, I began to research um, you know, because as a parent, you just start looking for everything you can get your hands on, ways to help them, you know, what's, what's driving this, what's going on. And it is designed. It is designed to, uh, to form an addiction. They know that. The pharmaceutical company knows that. It's a billion-dollar-a-year industry, and it's just really scary. I think that with medical marijuana, uh, it comes down to what your motives are. So if you truly have an issue that you need treatment for, then absolutely, you know, medicine is a good thing when used properly and, and we're smart about it, and whether that's pot or whatever it is. But if your motivation is, oh, now it's legal, so now I have a reason to use it, so, oh, well, you know, I got depression, so I'm going to use pot, well, I don't think that that's okay. You're not actually dealing with anything. Uh, so, Brandon, after you're, you're, full, you're fully recovered now, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, addicts always say that you you know you're you're an addict forever. Uh, you're you're in recovery for the rest of your life. Is that true in your case, or when you go undergo this sort of through this Christian uh, rejuvenation process, do you feel like you're 100 percent healed? You can say, "I am no longer an addict." Man, I really was hoping that you were going to ask this question because this is my soapbox. Uh, yeah, I really hate when people label addiction as a disease that is not curable. Uh, and the reason I hate it is because science has proven, just like I was talking about, that you can renew the mind. Even if you can't, there's a supernatural element. God can heal things that can't be healed, so there is that. But whenever you condemn somebody and you say, all right, you're an addict, you have a disease for life, you've just condemned them to death, and you've, you've taken all hope they have away from them. You told them you're always going to be an addict. No matter what you do, no matter how long you have clean, you're always going to be an addict. So what happens to this person who's been told they're always an addict, who's poly addicted to every single substance because that's what they teach you in, in traditional right. schools? It's all day by day. You're a day away from returning to your old miserable self. So, so what happens when that person has a beer? Well, then, in their mind, that lie kicks in. Well, you know, I'm an addict, and I just returned and wasted all my time. So a lot of times, that turns in that one beer at that moment turns into I'm off to the races. Why? Because you've already condemned them to that behavior. I don't believe that at all. I believe that I am healed, uh, and I believe that people can be healed. And it's been demonstrated in my life. Whenever I have had a beer since then, I haven't been off to the races and did that and fallen back into that. Um, you know, I think abstinence is the best idea, though. Right, right. Um, Lisa, 
I wanted to ask you, um, there are a lot of, well, either of you can answer this, I suppose, but there are a lot of attorney generals now in, in various states who are, who are going after these drug companies. What's going on in Florida? Do you know whether the, the attorney general there, are they, are they launching a case? I'm not sure if they're launching a case. I know that our governor cracked down on the pill mills. When Brandon had his addiction, it was so easy to just go up and down Interstate 95, Interstate 75. People were coming in from Tennessee, Ohio, um, other states, Kentucky, Alabama, to come up and down our interstate and just get huge uh, prescriptions of these pills. Um, since then, they've made it more difficult, um, and they've cracked down on that issue. And I'm hoping that they will begin to go after the pharmaceutical companies, because really, that. That's where it started. Michael, would jump on there if I have. Yes, please. Yeah, the, the way it used to be, whenever I was in my addiction, I would go to every doctor shop in Fort Lauderdale when I went to Miami to pick up pills. And I'd take my friends with me, and I'd get half of their scripts. And that's how, you know, things led the way they did. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this story that, that we haven't covered, but it got really bad. Um now there is a tracking system in place in Florida, but we want more. We want there. Uh, we want more to be talked about. We want to offer hope to people who are in shoes like I was in, who felt like there was no hope. Because when I was in that particular place, there wasn't a lot of people standing up saying, "Hey, I've been through what you're going through, and I made it out the other side. I got my family back. I, I have a life, and it's a beautiful life." after the addiction you can too let me show you the way and take these people by the hand and walk them out of that dark room that they're stuck in so after your recovery or your healing let's say after your full healing uh i mean now you have a criminal record how do you get on with your life when you know other people are looking at you and saying well okay so you're off opioids but you know you've got a criminal record Man, that is, that is something that can only be explained as supernatural favor of God. I came out of uh, Dunklin, and that's the first thing that I was worried about. I'm not going to be able to jog because I'm a convicted felon. i got all these other misdemeanors on my, on my record. There's no way that anybody's going to give me a shot. Uh, I went out on a limb and put in an application with Best Buy and went in and told, told the manager my story, you know, kind of hanging my head down and um, just being open and honest with him, like, please give me a shot. And uh, he's like, yeah, we'll hire you, but, you know, he doesn't have full control of that. There's human resources and company policies that are in place that could prevent it. Um, and there's wood. There's red flags. But God somehow got me through all the red flags and uh, got me into the company. I started out at a part-time job making $9 an hour and working like 10 hours a week. I had, when I went into Dunklin', I lost everything. I lost my furniture, my house, you know, because it got so bad that I gave everything away in my drug addiction. Uh, at the end, you know, it went from being this big guy who was selling all these pills to this really bad junkie who lost everything, you know, to the bottom of the bottom. And so I had a part-time job with nothing, $9 an hour, and God began to promote me uh, and just give me favor with the management there. And eventually I ended up with my own store as a general manager with Best Buy. Amazing. All right. Bad. Brandon, sorry, i got to jump in again. We'll uh, yep. pick it up on the other side. Lee, or, sorry, Lisa and Brandon Henderson with their remarkable story, opioid addiction and supernatural recovery. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Do not go away. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 
416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lisa Brandon Henderson here with this remarkable story, Opioid Addiction and Supernatural Recovery. Uh, I just want you to finish up on that, that story before we go to the phone calls, Brandon. So you, you came out of uh, Dunklin Christian Recovery thinking, oh my, okay, so I'm off opioids, but no one will ever hire me. I have a, a rap sheet as long as my arm. Uh, and you said God started to promote you. You, you got a, a part-time job at a Best Buy. And eventually, you ended up managing your own store. Is that right? Absolutely. That's that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, and and what's so amazing about God is He will give you way more than you ever thought was possible. And that's exactly what happened with me. Yeah, I went from having lost everything to now I have several investment properties. Um, I've actually been able to step away from Best Buy at this point to where I'll, this all I do is itinerate speaking. Uh, interviews like this and my real estate um, that was like not even fathomable for me when I was coming out of Duck and I just couldn't see that as possible because of that rap sheet but God's like man I love you so much and, and it's not just me he loves us all that much he's just sitting there waiting to pour his love out on us you start making one decision that's right after the other and he'll promote you and that's what happened to me he started opening doors and no way anybody would are you kidding me I was uh, I was running a multi-million dollar business for this five, Fortune 500 company, had keys to the safe, codes to the store, and here I am with this rap sheet and this you know, convict, convicted felony uh, on my record. That's, that's only the favor of God. There's no way that doesn't happen with the logic of man. Did you ever meet that judge again? I did not. Actually, he faced his own charges because he was uh, colluding with the state attorney to really... Mm-hmm. send innocent people and other people who they didn't have very much information on uh, to jail as well as being too hard on people. So I uh, never got to meet him again. Well, that's, so that's interesting. Even more of a, that's even more of a supernatural twist right there. Yes. Because here's this hard judge who gives my son mercy. Exactly. I was just going to say that. <laughs> uh, let's say hi to Melvin. He's in Hamilton, Illinois. Melvin, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Good morning to you, sir. Uh, I was blessed to be in. It's hard for me to talk, but I know this lady that in her 80s now, I think she was in her 60s when she had an operation up in Iowa City, Iowa, at a university hospital. She died. They uh, wanted to, they had a toe tag on her. The Doctors wanted her husband to sign a paper so they could uh, harvest her organs, and he wouldn't do it. She came back to life. She was room temperature, they said. She got the paper from the doctors that took care of her. So I just want to let you know miracles are still happening. 
That's remarkable. Do you know how long she was clinically dead before she came uh, back? No. But obviously she was declared dead. She had a toe tag. They were getting ready to harvest her organs. And um, does her husband believe that it was? Did he pray for her to come back? Is this, or did she just come on, come out of it on her own? Melvin, are you there? All right, I think we lost Melvin. Still, a remarkable story. Uh, Lisa and uh, Brandon, did you want to comment on that before we uh, move along? Uh, my, my parents got a very close story to that. Well, we had a guy in our church who was uh, brain dead. That they had yeah, but for eight hours, guy in our church was uh, in a four-wheeler accident, was brain dead for eight hours. They had him on life support. Uh, his family called us in, and my husband prayed for him, and he came back from the dead. Eight hours? Eight hours. No brain damage? Came back with no brain damage. Oh, my. He's a member of your church? He was a member of... His parents were a member ah. of our church. Now, your husband, Ken, it sounds like he was not... Uh, I mean, he was convinced from the get-go that, that nothing bad was going to happen to you, Brandon. He, every time he called you, he called you a man of God and said, you're not going to die. God has a plan for you. He was not deterred for a moment, it sounds like. He is, he is a strong man of faith. You know, he read over in Ezekiel where God took Ezekiel to this valley, and in the valley there was this big emptiness of dry bones. The valley was filled with dry bones. And God began to speak to him, and he said, Can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, he replied to the Lord, he said, Well, you know, Lord. And God said to Ezekiel, he said, Prophesy, son of man. And so Ezekiel began to prophesy to him, and the bones became together and began to have flesh come over and come back to life. And he read that and believed that he could prophesy life over me, and even though it looked like I was dead and I was bones because that's what it looked like. You know, if you just see a picture of me today, I'm 190 pounds, 5'11". You know, at that time, I had gotten down to 140 pounds, and I looked like walking death. And so that valley of dry bones, that's what I looked like walking around. And he just, he believed that that prophecy that God had with Ezekiel, he could apply that to my life. And so he began to call that out in me and stand in the gap for me when nobody else could. Him and my mother stood in the gap for me. Uh, and they believed in the words that they had received over me, that there was a purpose for my life. Now, now, looking back, we can see the reason that I had the fights that I had is because I got this message that not a lot of people have that I can take to people who are in this situation and pull them out, and then they can take that message to other people. We can turn this world around. Uh, Lisa, you're a filmmaker. Uh, tell me about this, uh, this documentary, uh, Hope Has a Name. This, is, this documentary is about Brandon's story, is it not? Um, it's. Brandon's story is actually included in the documentary. My husband and I uh, filmed Hope Has a Name. We released it um, 2017, and it's um, about women around the world who are doing what Brandon's doing as far as bringing hope to hopeless situations. Some of them live in the Congo, um, Mozambique, Africa. One lives in a closed nation. We can't even show her face or tell the nation uh, that she lives in because she'll be killed. But what sparked the story was um, Mary Lanier. She was an older lady in her 80s that lived on the campus at Dunklin Memorial. 
and Brandon and the men were allowed to go by her house. They weren't allowed to have television, internet, radios, any any communication with the outside as they go through the program. But they could go by her house and talk to her, and she would play songs for them. And so when we got to come for family day, we met her. We got to go to her house, and I we just marveled watching these grown men, some of them, you know, hardened criminals, gang members, some of the worst cases you can imagine, filter into this woman's house, stand, standing room only, and kiss her when they walk in on the forehead, kiss her when they leave, and then as she would begin to talk to them, and she would share hope and love with them, they would cry. And I just sat there watching, my husband and I watching these grown men crying, and we said, this woman is really doing something, and nobody knows her name or who she is or, or where she's from, and here she is kind of secretly ministering um, to all these men, and that sparked an idea that there's women around the world that are doing similar things that people, they don't have a big platform or a big name, but they're just bringing hope, and they're not doing it for money or fame. Um, we have one of the women uh, in China that takes in uh, children who are blind and deaf and can't walk or have Down syndrome, children that nobody else wants. She brings them into her home and raises them. Brandon, did you meet this woman while you were at Dunklin? Uh, yes, I did. She absolutely impacted me. And there were times when the program had gotten very tough, and uh, so tough that I was, I was actually like, you know what, I think that I'll just take prison over this because some of the stuff that I was dealing with was very emotional, very painful, and it was tough. You know, and I was having, to, it, there was a second part of the program they had. There was uh, family recovery, so my wife would come out, and we would, we would work on our marriage together at the same time. Whenever I felt like I was ready to quit, I would go by Miss Mary's house, and she would just love on me. And it's a men's program, so in a men's program, you got to be tough with them. you got to consult them. you got to be hard uh, in a lot of areas in order to get people to face issues that they don't want to deal with. So I had that all the time from the men's program, but the part that was lacking was the compassion and the love. And when I would go around to her house, she would love on me, and she would pull up pictures of my family and show them to me. And that would give me hope and a reason to keep trying when I felt like quitting. And what what were these songs that she was playing? They were Christian songs, you know. Uh, she played stuff from like Bethel, um, Need to Breathe, uh, just a lot of the, the popular uh, Christian songs that would minister to these guys. And, you know, they would call out. She was like, my husband called her a... a what a VJ, <laughs> and uh, here she was, at, you know, 80 years old, and in this chair, and she would just get on her little computer and just pull up these songs for these guys and let them listen to them, and they would listen, and she'd listen with them, and they would just cry as the song would, um, you know, really touch their emotions and and speak to them. These were like hardened hardened criminals, some of them gang members, in the presence of this 80 year old woman, and she's having this yes. effect upon them. Yes, yeah, like, like it, it, unbelievable, and that's really what struck us. And my son had told us about her. He, he, when we call, he said, "You got when you come see me, you have to come see Miss Mary." And I'm like, "Who is this Miss Mary?" And we went by her house, and I just sat there, and yeah, and you'd see these guys lining the walls, literally a little two bedroom cottage that was not very big, and these guys would crowd in their standing room only, sit around on the floor, on the furniture, and then stand um, when there was no place left to sit just to be with her. And I don't know how to explain to you how someone can just release 
the love of God to the to, to a point where you could actually feel it in the room. Hmm. But that's what was happening, and it was affecting these men. And so she became the inspiration for you to make this documentary. So you started to look for other women. How did you find these yes. other women around the world? Well, there was one other woman we were working with um, in Bartow, Florida. And I, when I describe her, I say she's a skinny white girl that was going into a um, impoverished area that was crime infested and just going in and loving on these kids who were being neglected and overlooked in the, in the project. So we went out, my husband and I, and um, we did a like a outreach where we just brought in a bunch of food and began to feed them and just, you know, not force religion on them, but just be there and, and give them food and ask them if they need prayer for anything. And I just watched her going in. She'd been going into this place for 14 years, practically alone. Um, and I'm thinking, here she is going in by herself day after day, week after week. She didn't have a, a big church supporting her, but she's just going, trying to make a difference. And actually, she was. Crime started dropping. The, the um, housing authority gave her a building to set up and began to hold classes for these kids and after-school care. So the combination of Miss Mary and this woman doing this really sparked this idea for my husband and I to make a movie about other women. And then, yes, God led us to the other women. What was the girl's name in Barton? Oh, the girl's name in Barto is Jessica Goodman. Jessica Goodman. Yes. And again, the uh, the film, the documentary is Hope Has a Name. Is this a documentary or a docudrama? It's a documentary. Okay. So the actual... We actually went around the world filming it. China, um, Congo, Mozambique, Mississippi. Mississippi. So they sound like Mother Teresa's. They are. Actually, some of them were described as modern-day Mother Teresa. Heidi Baker is somebody that actually is called a uh, modern-day Mother Teresa. She's in the film. She feeds, I think, about 20,000 people a day now. Um, and, you know, her, her ministry is in, like, 57 nations, I think, now. How do people get to see uh, Hope Has a Name? They can go to hopehasanamemovie.com. And you can do a digital download or purchase a DVD. You can purchase it off of Amazon. Um, we've just been picked up by a distributor, and they'll be offering it as well. And uh, if, if uh, church groups want to show it, there's a license um, on the website that they can get a church license? Yes. yes, they can get a screening license, a public viewing license um, on the website. And we'd love for churches and public groups to to screen it, and where possible, um, we try to go and be there when they screen it to answer questions and, and just be a part of the event. And again, the website? It's uh, hopehasanamemovie.com. Hopehasanamemovie.com. Hope yes. has a movie, sorry, hopehasanamemovie.com. Uh, so, Brandon, are you now working with uh, with other addicts or are you, you I know you're you're doing a lot of speaking um, on the local level uh, I work with some recovering addicts here in the church um, I just got an invitation to go speak at one of the camps where I can, I'm going to go share my story one of the camps that was offspring of Dunklin um, I've been invited to come back down to Dunklin and, and speak there so anytime I get an opportunity to do that um, that's, that's what I'm doing is trying to bring hope to addicts. But on a local level, I get to live with some of these guys, and seeing some of the transformations in our local church is, is just amazing. And um, 
Lisa, I mean, you and your husband, you obviously you're you're pastors at this this church, but how else has this changed your life? Wow, well, I, I I just lost my breath for a second. It has totally changed my life. It helped watching Brandon's struggle has given me such compassion for other addicts. You you don't look at them the same because I realize that is somebody's son. You know, when Brandon would look at me and he'd say, Mom, I'm just a junkie, it would break my heart. And I would say, I know what my eyes were telling me. You know, the fact was he was a junkie. But the truth was he was my son, and he was called to be much more than that. So I have such compassion for people with addictions, for their families, and I have such a greater understanding of the love, mercy, and grace of God than I have ever had because I watched my son cry out to God for help but yet be bound by this drug and couldn't get free. And other people would write him off and say, you know, he just doesn't want to be free or, you know, all the the, um, things that people say. But having walked through it, I have so much more compassion. I have so much greater, I have a greater love for God because of what he's done for our family, the mercy has shown us. All right, uh, Lisa, sorry, Brandon, we will pick this up on the other side. I want to say something. You were asking about me uh, helping with the local people. Sorry, Brandon, let's pick this up on the other side. We're just going to go to a break, and we will get right back to that. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740. Or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. Still looking for some miracle stories. If you've been healed or witnessed a healing through supernatural intervention, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. Don't be shy. You're among friends. Toll free from out of town. one 740 4740-1866-740-4740. Brandon, I interrupted you. you I I'd asked you, uh, had you been working with uh, addicts in your area, and um, you wanted to, uh, to, to uh, yes. tell me a story. One, yes, one guy very near and dear to my heart came to mind uh, just now after we got done talking about that, and uh, his name is John Slopes. John Swopes walked into our church about four years ago by accident. He thought it was an AA meeting. We were having class because we have uh, a school called Cornerstone School of Supernatural Ministry. And uh, we were having class that night. I was in there, and he walked in. He saw that it wasn't an AA meeting, so he quickly ducked out. Now, John is this big guy. He's like six foot three, big red beard, tattoos everywhere, kind of scary-looking guy. And, like, I felt immediately like, hey, I need to go talk to that guy. So I jumped up and chased him out into the parking lot, and he's like, man, I, you know, I just got released from detox. I'm looking for AA. And so I just began to share my story with him. Uh, he came in and just has joined the family, and today, today marks four years exactly he's been clean and sober. 
And then my dad just walked in the room and, and reminded me that also I'm going to Serbia uh, in February to do a crusade. I just got back from Serbia and going back to do a crusade for the Roma people who have a real problem right now uh, with drug addiction. And so they're putting together a big deal where I'm going to go speak uh, it, to the nation, basically. In Serbia? Yes. Interesting. Uh, so what is going on with the Roma people? Uh, they have an, an opioid uh, issue there as well? You know, drugs are cross-cultural. You know, it's not just us who are struggling with addiction. Different nations are struggling with it. They're, they're also struggling with addiction. I don't know for sure if it's opiates or if it's another type of substance, but one of the head pastors uh, of the region or of the nation there, of the Roma people, um, while I was there this last time on a mission trip, he said, man, your story has really impacted me and my church. He says, You'll come back in February. He says, I'll have a crusade put together because our people need to hear your story because there's so many people who are bound by addiction in this nation. Uh, so he didn't identify exactly what the substance was, but that there was an issue with abuse. Are there similarities between the AA program? Because it, it, it is sort of faith-based, is it not, AA? Yes. Well, you have to give up to a higher to, power. The idea that you have to, to give up to a higher yeah. power. Yeah. So there is that, and they don't really define it. Um, I do believe in a lot of the steps, but I don't uh, I don't want to speak negatively because they really do a lot of good for a lot of people. You know, I'm not going to say anything bad about AA uh, at all. I believe in the program. It's, it's a little different than, than what I teach and, and what Dunklin teaches because we teach in total regeneration uh, and recovery, whereas at AA, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I'm always an alcoholic. Right, right. Now, this this program at, at uh, Dunklin, is this something that anyone can be trained so that they could start their own center, or do these people have, you know, medical degrees, or, or what, I mean, what is the, what are sort of the, the skill sets or the prerequisites? Uh, well, first off, you got to go through the program, whether you got an addiction or not. So if you want to be a counselor there, you have to go through the full-blown program. And then uh, a lot of the staff goes goes on to get counseling degrees on top of that. Um, but typically, it's a three-year study of ministry internship before you're actually on staff there. So you do one year of the program, then you do two years of training with college on top of that before you're ever qualified to lead it at that, at that camp. And what is the success rate? You know, uh, I have this saying that 70% of statistics are made up on the spot. So it would be really hard to quantify, <laughs> really, really hard to quantify uh, what, what the exact uh, statistic would be on that. But uh, my experience has been is, is considerably higher than, than what I've witnessed outside of the program. You know, I think it'd be safe to say that probably five out of ten guys who go through actually stick through it and, and, and uh, walk it out. Lisa, did you go through the program? Um, I went through a version of it um, after Brandon came out of Regeneration. He actually took our entire family through what we call inner healing, um, which the portion of it that we went through was based on um, a model that Pastors Carol and Margie Rowland wrote and constructed. They, They run an inner healing class down there as well. So we went through that portion of it as a family, and then we we take our leadership and our church through it, and then we now are getting calls from people with addiction, different types of addiction or trauma um, that want to sit down and go through the program with us here. 
and and it's funny because I was just in Cancun, and uh, while I was down there, I came across the psychologist, and she was talking to me. And she's in Cancun, so she's cutting loose a little bit. And I just started talking to her about inner healing and kind of was doing inner healing on her. And she just started crying. She's like, man, she's like, you know, how do you know these things? And, and so amazing. I was, for me, it was kind of like, wow, she's a psychologist and this is, this is impacting her. Uh, that's, that's how amazing that it is is because it cuts down to the roots and stuff. And she's like, wow, everybody needs to hear this. And that's from a doctor. Right. She wasn't a Christian. She had nothing to do with that, but it was, she was blown away by it. And and Lisa, when you and your when your family went through it, was it as tough as it, as they say, as Brandon was explaining, going through that? It it, it was very tough. Um, there was eight of us going through it once. Poor Brandon, he was leading it, and um, we were a hot mess um, <laughs> as we were going through it. <laughs> a hot mess, okay. We were a hot mess because you know we were there was um, eight of us going through. Took his siblings through it and their uh, mates and um, his dad and myself. And so, you know, you're dealing with a lot of emotions, a lot of things you've buried. So, you know, there's a lot of crying and, you know, getting upset with each other easily. Still, I don't think it was as tough as what he went through because um, he was in um, a, you know, lockdown type situation with uh, day in and day out, no break type of thing uh, in your face constantly. So he took it probably a little easier on us, but um, it, it was, it was, it's, you really have to look at your junk. <laughs> look at your junk. All right. Yep. <laughs> I like That's that. A technical term. <laughs> it is, yes. Very scientific. We'll come back. Uh, one segment remains with uh, Lisa and Brandon Henderson. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at one 866 740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, a few moments yet with... Lisa and Brandon Henderson, and again, the uh, the documentary "Hope Has a Name," and you can um, I guess you can order the DVD. You can get special licensing to, to show it at your local church. Hope has a name movie dot com. Hope has a name movie dot com. So you don't have to be an addict, then, obviously, to go through this program. I mean it. Uh, if let's say a person doesn't have any bad habits, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they eat right, they, you know, is there something there still for them? I mean, should everybody? Would you recommend everybody go through this program? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we all could benefit everybody, regardless of you. If you don't have a behavioral issue, there's a lot of people who don't. But there's still other things. You know, you may not have self confidence. You may not view yourself uh, the way that you should do yourself you know uh, the program will help deal with a lot of those lies and and break that stuff off of you and just give you freedom to be able to move in ways that you hadn't previously moved there's a there's a girl who goes to our church um named amber and she went through the program she has no addictions uh, no problems with any kind of behavioral issues she did have a little bit of a lack of self-confidence she went through the 
and social anxiety. She used to have real bad social anxiety. So she went through inner healing and it's completely changed her life. You know, every time we talk about it, she stands up and testifies to other people. She's like, this changed my life. This gave me boldness to do things that I couldn't do before and dealt with a lot of the underlying issues of why I didn't see myself uh, as valuable, even though it didn't never come across in drug addiction, didn't never come across in, in, you know, overeating or whatever you want to put your life as. But faith is central to it, right? Prayer is central. I mean, without that, it, the program is it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. That's right. There, there's two parts to the program. Uh, there's we, we, we call it a division of labor, and the division of labor is this. You cannot do God's part, and He won't do your part. So you have to work to go through it, but you have to have God to help you. And so that's where the prayer and faith come in. See, I'm British-raised Protestant. We have our own program. You take your feelings, and you stuff them deep down inside, and you say nothing until they become hard like a diamond. And that's it, basically. And then you live like that. That is, <laughs> that is the majority. I'd say that's the majority of the, you know, the Christian church. Yeah. And that yeah. is part of the reason that we go home and have these private struggles that we're afraid to talk about or, or to share and we just, you know, we're taught to keep that under and keep it hidden. And, you know, on the inside, it's killing us. Right, right. Because when you're British, you can't afford to be a hot mess. It's not allowed. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, do you have this program seems like, you know, it could be the answer for so many people. And you have this opioid scourge raging across North America like a wildfire. It's just out of control. Uh, I mean, do you have the ear, ears of, of decision makers that they could, they could start, you know, instituting this in, you know, communities and, and lending a hand so that it could expand rapidly to meet this challenge? We're hoping to gain more ears through programs like this and, and other opportunities. We're trying to get on bigger platforms so that eventually we gain the ear of somebody who's going to make a big difference, somebody who has the power to change stuff and to implement some of this stuff. And uh, I think that we have plenty of people who are ready to help step in and start teaching it. Well, but we have to have somebody help implement it. Uh, I mean, your president has the backing of, uh, you know, a huge proportion of the evangelical uh, movement in the United States. I don't know which denomination you are. It doesn't matter. But the point is, you know, they just he just made a major announcement about, uh, you know, declaring, you know, opioids uh, a, um, a national emergency and willing to put money where his mouth is and so forth. Uh, do you think you, this program might see some of that money? Do you, what do you hear? What do you know? Well, we don't know. Uh, that would be awesome if it could see some of this money. Um, we mentioned some of the, the contributors to writing some of the program that we use, which is Margie and Terrell Rowland, and they are very gifted at training people and would love to be able to go into communities and churches and train people in how to, in turn, lead this program. And correctional facilities. Uh, correctional. We had such... Um, success in the women's prison in Hernando uh, County, Florida, doing this program. It was unbelievable. And did the wardens take notice and notice a, a wholesale change in the behavior of these Yes, inmates? absolutely. The warden did. Um, I, don't know, I don't think he's still there. But yes, they were um, complimenting and writing us and telling us that they were seeing a huge difference in the women and their behavior after um, completing the 12-week sessions we did there. 
The name of the ministry, the Supernatural uh, Ministry. Cornerstone School of Supernatural Ministry. Right. School of Supernatural Ministry. That's that's an interesting title. Tell me more about that. Why the School of Supernatural Ministry? Well, we believe um, that as Christians, we have the ability to do supernatural acts as Jesus did. Um, he said this, he said, greater the things I do, greater things will you do. We know that it's um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we teach people about that, um, that that is for today. They do have the ability to pray for people and see people healed. They do have the ability to have a vision um, about their son or their loved one, um, you know, that, that God directs that vision and gives it to us. So we train people up to believe that they can lay hands on people as my husband in the hospital and even pray for people to come back from the dead. And, I mean, what do you hear on that score? I mean, I, I've heard about I mean, there, a book. I, I had a I had a, a guest many years ago uh, who wrote a book about resurrections taking place all over the world uh, in places like Africa and India. I mean, these were stories where you had recounted one about someone who had been brain dead for something like eight hours. There were stories like that. You know, people literally crawling out of their coffin at their own funeral. Um, you know, obviously these were in developing countries. They weren't, uh, they didn't go undergo the embalming procedure and so forth. But just, what, are, are we in a new age of miracles? What's happening? I believe we are. I believe that, that we are in an age of miracles and that we're going to see more signs, wonders, and miracles um, as we progress. We have friends that are in third world countries um, that have seen people be raised from the dead um, several days after being dead, um, many, many days, actually. Um, it, smell bad. I mean, yeah, like smelling bad, rotting type thing. Like, like Lazarus coming out of yes, the tomb. Yes. Oh, my um, Lord. Just incredible um, testimonies of people being healed of leprosy, which we don't hear about ever in this country. But, um, you know, we're seeing more and more of that. And some of the people we run with um, are seeing some incredible stuff as well. And we've seen some pretty amazing things. We've seen people healed of cancer. We've um, documented, um, we've, my husband prayed for people in Clearwater, Florida, three different men documented with AIDS. Um, one of them had two weeks to live. Um, with a huge viral count of AIDS and tumors all in his body, completely healed. Um, and this has been documented. So, you know, we're seeing God do some amazing supernatural stuff. He's a supernatural God. Yes. Um, yes. The supernatural was here before the natural. It's, it's more real than the natural. It was here first. Have any of these healings been documented on, I mean, you made a documentary about these remarkable women. How about a documentary on these supernatural healings? Is that in the works? Yeah, that's a possibility. Um, we've got a, a couple more, well, several more projects um, that we're planning to do. So, you know, that I would love to do something along those lines because we, we know some people who have seen some pretty incredible things that we would love to document. Yeah, because, uh, you know, people have faith, but then when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know, they're from Missouri, right? Show me. Right. So if you could take a camera over some of these developing countries and actually imagine capturing something like that on film or video, someone literally being resurrected from the dead. I'm not talking just, you know, a near-death experience. They, they, were, they were gone for a couple minutes. We're talking, what was the term you used? Stinky dead or something? Like that. <laughs> rotten dead. Rotten, rotten dead. dead. Yeah. Really bad, rotten dead, yeah. Oh, my Lord. 
I mean, that's a game changer. I don't care where you're from. You see something like that. That's absolutely. So, uh, what's next for you, Brandon? You're you're off to Serbia again. What else is going on? That's it, man. Uh, my mission is uh, just to carry hope everywhere. Besides Serbia, I'm also going to Brazil. So that is in the works. Uh, and Kenya next year as well. Um, and anywhere in the U.S. or Canada that, that opens their doors, I'll be glad to come and share. You know. And I also want to say to those who are listening before this winds down, if you're a family member of a drug addict, a wife, a mother, a husband, you are absolutely critical to them finding God and to them finding recovery. My mom, my dad, and my wife, Julie, stood in the gap for me like nobody else. When nobody else would, they hang, they, they would hang on. So if you're listening and you've got a family member out there, there is hope. Don't give up. That's the message I'm taking around the world, not just to the addict, but to the families, to the people who feel like this is just absolutely hopeless. Um, so anywhere I get an opportunity to go, I'm going to go. And is there a number, uh, or did they reach you through the website? They can reach me at 321-307-5444. Do you want to give us that number again? Yes. 321-307-5444. If I don't pick up, please leave a message. And if they can't reach in there, they can go through um, our church website, uh, mysotlifechurch.com through the Hope Has a Name movie website or through the Cornerstone School of Supernatural Ministry website. So there's multiple ways to reach him. All right. Now, Brandon, silly question as we close out. It's going to sound like, I guess, but uh, here goes. I mean, because of your criminal record, are you, do you, is there any restriction on your travel? Can you come to Canada? I can come to Canada. I have a passport. That was one of the things I was super worried about, too. You know, my sisters were going on these mission trips when I was on house arrest. And uh, God was just like, you know what, I'm going to open those doors for you, too. And he actually allowed me to take a cruise that someone else bought for me while I was on felony probation and leave the country. Uh, when I got off probation, I sent in the application, got my uh, passport approved. And so now, you know, I've been to Serbia already. I'm going back. I just came back from Mexico. I've been all over the Caribbean. And, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to go to, uh, to Africa next year as well. So well, Canada is definitely an option. See, the Lord is the almighty hall monitor. You get a, you get a hall pass. You can go anywhere. All access pass, even a, a, a felon. Wonderful. That's right. That's funny that you said that, Richard, because when Brandon was on house arrest and the girls were taking these mission trips and he was looking really sad, I felt like the Lord had me go to him and said, he said, tell him that all it takes for him to go is for me to say he goes. Amazing. Amazing story. Both of you, thank you so much. A delight meeting you. Thank you for spending two hours with us. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Very powerful. All right. My thanks uh, to uh, Ian, Albert Vinzel, wherever you are, talking into a shoe somewhere, or maybe his lapel. I think he's a spy. Uh, Ryan, as always, thank you. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.